Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome to part two of my 500th podcast celebration. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. We can't always control what happens to us, but we must manage how we react to what happens to us. When I saw AI might take a lot of routine jobs away, um, I think actually for the very long term, it's good for humanity because we continue to fall into this um, trap of uh, downward spiral of continuing to be um, addicted to work and, and, and seemingly prove that we're worth something. But in fact, uh, when we pass on and die, uh, we won't be remembered. So it's, it's really a matter of um, um, giving back to the people who, who love you. This is what I loved the most, was setting a goal and accomplishing it. Like, I wanted to get better all the time. I think that your true passions in life are, they come off so well, it resonates with people. People can tell when you're really into something and when you're not. When you're educated, when you're passionate, when you light up about it, it's that metaphysical energy that happens when you love something and people are like, Wow, like, look at you just light up when you talk about that. You guys have done so much in supporting me. So I compiled all of this research I've done over the past four, four and a half years about side hustles. And I just want you to have this. I often talk to people about this and people think making money on the side is very difficult and it just doesn't have to be that way. And that's why I did an enormous amount of research to put together a brand new book, a book that I'm not publishing on Amazon. I printed up a bunch of copies. I want people who are really interested in the choose yourself life to get it. The book's called The Side Hustle Bible. The book is a collection of 177 proven opportunities to turn your hobby or existing skills into an entirely new source of income, which is why I called it the Side Hustle Bible. I wrote it for me. I wrote it for you. You can get it for free at jamesfreebooks.com. That's jamesfreebooks.com. Claim your free copy of the Side Hustle Bible. Just go to jamesfreebooks.com. these podcasts have changed my life. When I have a guest on, it's not because the guest is popular or it's because I think this guest will get me a lot of downloads or whatever. I bring on a guest who I am a fan of and I have specific questions in mind that I want to ask this person so I could be a better person. I could be better at the things I love doing. I could be a better peak performer or I could just live a better life filled with more well-being. And that's the criteria for someone to be a guest. So I'm not a journalist. I'm bringing on guests who are going to make my lives better. And from each guest, I try to take 
one to 10 things that I'm going to incorporate immediately in my life and see if it actually works. Uh, as Tim Ferriss once told me on this podcast, it's good to sometimes be a scientific experiment with a sample size of one where you're experimenting on yourself. And I love that way of thinking. And again, I always try to experiment with the ideas shared with me by these great peak performers who end up on my podcast. So we're going to have a bunch of clips. I'll do a little intro to each clip and here's some more. Clip one is from Bishop T.D. Jakes. And I love guests like this because we come from completely different backgrounds. It's not a natural combination uh, to see a mega preacher like Bishop T.D. Jakes and, and me together. But I really look up to this guy. The reason he started his church it was so inspirational to me. The sheer number of people he's helped, he's literally saved their lives is also inspirational. The way he does it, the way he communicates, he's so smart. He's dealt with so many issues. I feel this episode is more geared towards healing all the parts of ourselves that often feel wounded. We all have wounds that we carry around. And too often we let our wounds become our excuses. It's such an easy trap to fall into because it sort of not only excuses our wounds, but excuses all of the things we don't attempt to try later on in life. And so this is such a critical lesson to learn. T.D. Jakes has a beautiful way to explain how to alchemize that pain and turn it into your own personal power. So let's hear from Bishop T.D. Jakes, episode 455. We can't always control what happens to us, but we must manage how we react to what happens to us. Right, because there's a, there's an element of of surrender in all of this, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you, mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know much actually about the process of making wine, but a lot of it depends upon forces outside of your control, like the mm -hmm. weather that season, mm -hmm. things like that. And it seems like part of the, Part of the alchemy here is is learning how to to do that surrender. Surrender is so important, and it is so hard for me because being a type A person, you know, I want to make it turn out the way I want to make it turn out, and so I spent several weeks, you know, having a temper tantrum because life didn't go the way I wanted it to go. And then I do. Somebody asked me how to how do you survive crushing, or what do you do? I said you have no choice. Because the level of crushing that I'm talking about, whether it is physical, whether it is through tragedies, whether it is emotional, the level of crushing, if nobody wants to be crushed, nobody wants to be crucified, nobody wants to suffer, uh, it's foolish to sit here and say, oh, I want to be crushed. No, 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 I never want to be crushed. But sometimes things happen to us that we did not choose, but we can choose how we respond to it. How would you define freedom on a soul level or a spiritual level. So for instance, like you use the example of someone who continually goes out with the same sort of person that might not be good for them, gets trapped in that cycle. How do you get out of these emotional jails, which, which you also point out is just as strong and powerful as the physical jails we find ourselves in? You know, uh, first of all, I think I would define freedom as... Uh, surrender to destiny 
being liberated from the agony of ambition to be like you and to finally appreciate the wonderment is in being like me, that I was never weighed on the scale of you. Those are things we do to ourselves and thereby torment ourselves and inflict wounds upon ourselves. For example, what is pretty? Who says? What is attractive? In, in, in the 20s, we thought that people who were overweight were the most attractive because they being fat was successful. And then we changed our minds and then it became small. Wait a minute. Take back the definition of success from other people and, and, and be free to be the best you. Do you find yourself thinking that, like when you, you tell the story of when you, the first seven years of your ministry, you weren't yet preaching. You weren't, you weren't mm. yet probably in, in yourself. You were thinking, I could do so much more. Why, why is this not happening for me yet? I mean, I'm just guessing that that was going through your head, but you meant you allude to it in the book. Was that happening? Were you? No, no, because I never, I never set out to be uh, famous. I never really liked it. Um, I think it's really, really overrated. And uh, I, I, I never wanted to be bigger. I wanted to be better. I, I, I never wanted to be a big person. I wanted to be a great person. The only thing I've ever asked of my children is not that they be famous or that they be rich, but that they be great people. And and the distinction between big people and great people is opportunities or money can make you big. But if you're a little man, you're just a little man in a big house with a big car, with a big bank account, and that littleness still bleeds through. To be great has nothing to do with money or fame or fortune. And so even when I was struggling and even when things were small, it wasn't as bad as it reads when I describe it. I mean, everything I said about it was true. But one, you had to realize I had nothing to compare it to. And two, you had to realize that my goal wasn't to turn into uh, something famous or, or measured by this world. And it still isn't. The things I like most about me have nothing to do with you <laughs> or or anyone else. It has everything to do with me. Taking back that power over how you define what you are to be in your life, if you're good with it and God is good with it, why do we need everybody else to clap? This next clip is from an episode that's very special. First off, I think everybody who has listened to him or read his books will agree. This guy is probably one of the smartest people on the planet. It's Robert Greene. He wrote the book 48 Laws of Power, which is his first mega bestseller. But he also wrote one of my favorite books of all time, Mastery. And this past year, he wrote the book The Laws of Human Nature, Again, a great book. He he weaves in his ideas about life from so many historical examples. It's one of those books where every time I read a book by Robert Greene, I feel like my IQ goes up 10 points. It's one of the few books where I read it and I not only enjoy it, I feel smarter. And then when I talk to him, I feel even smarter still because I get to ask him all the questions about human nature 
or the 48 laws of power or mastery, all, all these questions that I'm so curious about while I'm reading the books, because they're so th thick with information that uh, there's inevitably uh, tons of questions. But this episode's special for another reason. Robert Greene um, was going to come on the podcast. Unfortunately, he had a stroke right after the book came out and before he had a chance to go on a book tour. But I love the book so much and I think so highly of him. He was one of my very first guests in 2013. I interviewed him about his book, Mastery. And I really think so highly of him and think he's such a good guy. Uh, I normally do 100% of my podcasts in person. 90% of communication is nonverbal. So you really have to be face-to-face -face with somebody, I feel, to have a really good interview. But I already knew Robert Greene and I really felt strongly that, A, I wanted to ask him questions that I had, so I didn't want to give up my chance to ask him questions. And I wanted him to promote this valuable book. I wanted him to get the word out about this book, and so I wanted to help him. So, so it's the only interview out of the past 200 or 300 that I did not in person. We did it over Skype, and it was still an amazing podcast episode for me, and I learned so much we talked about what motivates people, why people act the way they do, uh, all the different types of patterns that people become addicted to in life. But look, let's hear it from Robert Greene. Here's the clip. People never do anything once. When they reveal that they make a certain mistake in business or in the arts or whatever, you can be sure that they will repeat it. If someone does something to you that's a little bit hostile or that makes you angry, you can be sure that that's not just an exception, that they will repeat that behavior. And I make the point that everyone has a character. We have qualities that are deeply ingrained in us based on our genetics, based on our childhood and, and our parents, and our lives tend to fall into patterns weird patterns that we repeat over and over and over again. We have compulsive behavior. And so you want to be able to judge people's character by seeing their patterns, not by looking at their resume or their charming smile or everything that they try and show you, but look at their past and their patterns and they will reveal that underlying character. The ability to judge people's character to see whether they're strong or weak is one of the most important things that you can have. It will stop you from choosing the worst kind of romantic partner that will make your life miserable. It will prevent you from hiring people who are who who are charming but who are slackers or who are out to, to steal your company from you. It will help you not choose presidents or politicians who are going to ruin the country inadvertently or whatever. It's a key, key skill, seeing behind people's masks and judging what's the character from deep within. So, so, um, first Robert, I want to ask if you, if you need like a five minute break or anything, uh, uh, cause I, oh, I have, a, nice. I have a few more questions if you don't mind. Uh, but, uh, but I want, no, 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 no problem. I can go on. This is also so fascinating. I can go on for a while. So, uh, the next, the next law I am curious about is what you call the law of aimlessness. Yeah. Uh, and the chapter title is advanced with a sense of purpose. And you, you talk about, uh, Martin Luther King, which is such a great example, but I think um, a big question, and you and you answer this in the chapter. Right? It's it's actually an answer that similar to what I often recommend to people. 
but maybe you could describe the critical question is how does one find a sense of purpose? Not even just as a 20 year old, but let's say in this shifting economy as a 50 year old who just lost your job of 30 years, say, how do you, how do you take a step back and find what your sense of purpose is? So you don't feel that aimlessness. Well, um, it's, it's another million dollar question. And, um, I talk a lot about it in my previous book, Mastery, but I readdress it in this book. And the key is, I I don't want to get too philosophical because it's a very practical question. It's a very important one. But um, the problem that a lot of us have in the world today is that we don't know who we are. We don't know our own tastes, our own values, what makes us tick, what makes us unique. I try and make the point in this book and in Mastery that you are an individual, you are unique. There is no, your DNA, the way your brain is wired, your experiences in life, your particular parents will never ever be replicated in the history of the universe. And so there's something very special and different about you. And it's reflected in often in your early childhood, in your tastes, in things that you are naturally drawn to. This is most obvious in people who are very successful in life. So it's kind of a, it's a good example, but for a lot of people, it's frustrating because they'll say, well, I'm not like that, but uh, let me just pursue it for a moment. So for instance, Steve Jobs is six years old. He's walking with his father down the streets in Sunnyvale or somewhere in California, and he passes an electronic shop with all these gadgets, these weird new gadgets in it, and his eyes light up and he's so excited. He's never seen anything like that. And that ends up becoming a sign of something that he pers- that, that is consistent throughout his life. He's excited by gadgets, technology, but not just what how they work, but their design. I talk about how Tiger Woods is a year and a half old and he's watching his father hit golf balls in the garage. And he's so excited he can't he can't control himself. He has to do the same thing. I talk about Uh, Albert Einstein, who was given a compass when he was like five years old, and suddenly he's fascinated by this idea that there are forces in nature that you can't see, but that move that needle on the compass. I, you know, I could multiply these examples a hundredfold. And you probably had that somewhere in your childhood, maybe not as obvious as that, maybe not as dramatic, but there was something you were drawn to when you were very young. And what happens as you get older is I compare it to a voice. I say Martin Luther King, who knew from very early on that he was great with people and he wanted to be like the leader of some kind of movement. It was like a voice in his head that was directing him to where he wanted to go. So Steve Jobs, um, Albert Einstein, et cetera, there's a voice saying, this is where you should be. This is what who you are. And as we get older, we lose touch with that. We listen to our parents. We listen to the culture at large. And suddenly we're 30, 40 years old and we're a lawyer or we're in some job that we don't really connect to and we're downsized and we feel like we're at a loss. We're aimless. We don't know where to go. Well, you need to reconnect to who you are. You need to look at those things that excite you the most. I call them primal inclinations. It may not be so simple. It may not be just a simple thing like a golf ball, etc. I can speak from my own experience. I knew when I was about eight years old that I loved writing and books, and I knew that I wanted to be a writer. 
And my path in life is that I could never figure out what to write. I started off with journalism. Then I tried to write novels and plays. Then I got into Hollywood and I wrote screenplays. And I could basically say I was a failure in all of those different um, uh, arenas because they weren't connecting to something meaningful to me. It wasn't who I was. Finally, in 1996 or 95, I met a man who makes, produces books. And he said, Robert, why don't you do a book? And a light bulb went on in my head. God damn it, a nonfiction book, this is what I should be doing. This takes all of my interests, all of my experiences, and funnels it into something that that's fits me. So the lesson there was I kept trying my hand at different things that excited me but weren't quite right until I found the right thing. So you need to experiment. You need to look at what excites you and to try your hand at it, not being afraid to fail. If you're 45 years old and you suddenly lost your job, you're not in the position to experiment a lot. You're not in the position to suddenly try a totally different career. And what I advise is you take the skills that you have because we live in a skill-based world and the more skills you have, the better. So even if this is a job that you didn't like, you learn something from it and you wanna take those skills and you wanna apply them in a different way, in a direction that suits you more. I've said it in other interviews that there was a, a, a young woman who has a podcast. She had gone to law school and became a lawyer. And by the age of 30, she decided that she didn't like it. It wasn't who she was. Um, but she had always loved like writing and journalism. And so she decided to become a writer about legal matters and to write books about famous law cases and then maybe even do fiction. That's the kind of path I'm talking about. Take what you have, the skills that you've acquired, and apply them in a direction that suits you. But you can never get to that point if you don't know what suits you, if you don't know who you are, if you don't know what your tastes are. So just to kind of um, almost summarize what, what you so far have said is you have to try at least a little bit many things during life, whether young or older, but uh, another thing is, and this is what, what I always tell people, list what you enjoyed, let's say between the ages of six and 13 and age them. So for instance, if you like, like Steve Jobs, if you liked gadgets at the age of six and you, and now you're 25 and you age the concept of a gadget, suddenly computers are in that right, universe. Right. Um, and that's, for, that's and, a good, that's a good concept. I like that. And then, and then the third thing, which you mentioned in the book and is also very valuable, is the ability to combine skills. So, for instance, right. you know, you talk in mastery and, and, and uh, about the 10,000 hours and so on. Uh, yeah. You can borrow 3,000 hours from here, 5,000 hours from here, and kind of at the intersection yeah. of a variety of interests, you have more hours than anybody else in the world. Yeah, and, and I think the example that comes to my mind that I talked about in Mastery that I, that I think fits this is Paul Graham. I don't know how many people are, aware, are familiar with Paul Graham. He was uh, um, he's a great um, computer uh, software programmer who started a company called Y Combinator, which is worth billions of dollars. He sold it. Anyway, Paul Graham loved computers from a very young age. His father was involved in computers in the 70s. And he knew that that was his path. And he studied artificial intelligence before anyone else was. 
He got a degree in computer programming from, I think, MIT. But he hated politics and he hated dealing with people and he wasn't happy and he thought, he thought there was something else that he wanted to do. So he dropped that and he went to art school and he lived in Italy and he became a painter. And then he was in New York and he was in his loft painting and he heard an ad on the radio for this new thing called Netscape and how Netscape was gonna allow people to buy things on the internet. That was the future and it was like, what a weird concept, we will buy things on the internet? And a light bulb went on in his head and he goes, man, I'm, I'm sitting here struggling as an artist, I'm not happy, but I've, I have all these skills in programming and in design as an artist and I can take these things and I can combine them into something incredible. And he created the first online store for buying things online. He sold it to Yahoo for millions of dollars and that set the course of his life. And then he's sort of like a Picasso, he keeps changing things every few years. But he combined several interests in programming, in hacking, in artificial intelligence, in art, in design, and into the perfect storm. So he was, you wanna be, your most creative year, I'm afraid to say, is in your early 30s. Damn. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't mean. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you know you can still be doing things. I wrote this last book in my old, my late 50s, but you want to. By the time, if you're young enough to listen to this, by the time you're 30, you want to have skills in at least two or three areas, so that that light bulb will go off in your head when you're 31. You go, ah, I can combine this, this, and this and create something that no one else has ever made before. I'll say one other thing about how to get in touch with yourself. Not only look at what you're drawn to, what you love, but also look at what you hate, what turns you off, what you dislike. It may be working in a company. It may be politicking. Um, that means you're, not, you're, you're probably an entrepreneur. You shouldn't be in an office situation. Maybe it's the opposite. You can't stand being alone. Well, then you shouldn't be a writer, that's for sure. You should choose something where you're around a lot of people, a, a sort of a, something like what a community activist or something like that. So look at what you also really repulses you, what makes you angry. You don't, you, 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 I could compare it to swimming in a current. You want to swim with the current and not against it. And if you're pursuing a job or a career that doesn't really click, it's like you're always swimming upstream and you're never going to get there. But if you find what what works with you, what what you get excited about, suddenly you'll find the energy to accomplish great things. This, I always say this next episode is a very special one to me. So I almost feel disingenuous constantly saying that. But the reality is, once I start thinking about these people and these episodes, they're all special to me. It's not like I just say, oh, so-and-so is famous, let's get them on. I'll tell you a story. 1989, which is what, uh, 30 years ago, 1989, I was graduating college and I was trying to figure out what graduate school and computer science to go to. And I visited Carnegie Mellon and this graduate student was working on a brand new field. It almost seemed like magic. And it was the field of speech recognition. And so he showed me he said, this is the software we've been working on. The U.S. Navy is funding it, and we could recognize about 100 words. What were the 100 words? They were all words you would say on a Navy battleship. So, like, fire the bombs would be 
words that you might say. And uh, so Kaifa Lee is that it was that graduate student in 1989 who convinced me to go to graduate school at Carnegie Mellon University. But what was interesting to me about Kaifa Lee was not the speech recognition stuff. I had been following him for about a year earlier because I had completely studied uh, a a software program that he wrote. He got burnt out working on speech recognition and he took a year off from that and he created, um, just like as people do, he created the world champion Othello program. And I was very interested in computer game programming. I worked a little bit on the software that eventually became Deep Blue, which was the first computer program to beat the world chess champion. So I was fascinated by Kai Fu Lee's approach on Othello. And I studied every aspect of it. And it was a pleasure for me in 1989 to interview him about it and, and learn his techniques. And then after he created the world champion Othello program, he used those exact same techniques, brought it back into speech recognition. And by the way, then he worked at Apple. And so when you talk to Siri and Apple, you are using the descendants of Kai Lee's initial speech recognition software from Apple back in the nineties. But he worked at Apple, then he worked at Microsoft. Then he became in charge of Microsoft China. Then he became in charge of Google China. And then he became one of the most well-known and successful investors early on in China and the cross-section between China and the internet. So he wrote this book that's completely blew my mind about where China is in technology. But the book's called AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order. He came to New York City from China, came up to the podcast, and it was the first time I'm seeing him since 1989. The last time I had saw him before then was I was getting confused in graduate school. I didn't know what I wanted to study. And so I approached him and I said, hey, can we work together on a world champion program for the game Go, which is a very popular Asian board game, but very difficult. And Kai Fu Lee said, I can't do it. There's no, I can't figure out how to make an AI program that will be the world champion of Go. It was the hardest game to figure out how to beat with computers. And only this past two years, Google, with their AlphaGo software, figured it out. I think this is really the biggest innovation in AI in the past 30 years was what Google did. Uh, it evolved into their program, DeepMind. But anyway, this AlphaGo program amazingly and surprisingly beat and crushed the world champion of Go. And it was amazing. And it made me think of Kai-Fu Lee. But also we talked about that a little, but it was so amazing to catch up with this friend from 30 years ago who's gone on to be such an amazing success. So again, he wrote AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order. But also he talked about his own battle with cancer, how he personally took charge of, you know, the treatment of it and how it's changed his life since. So there was many different angles and perspectives I got to hear while I updated on this podcast with my old friend from 30 years earlier. So in this clip, he tells us what he thinks is going to happen when AI takes all of our jobs, how this will actually be a good thing for society. But what impressed me the most was when he talked about how Chinese business models differ from American business models. And it was, it was a fascinating discussion. Here's the clip from Kai-Fu Lee from episode 412. And Kai-Fu, I have to say, thanks in 2012, I think it was, for mentioning me on Weibo. It quickly got me thousands of followers there when I don't even know Chinese. So thanks for that and thanks for coming on the podcast. Mm -hmm. 
You know, I also want to touch on, you know, you mentioned AI and medical care and you experienced this firsthand uh, several years ago. You mentioned in the book, you came down with stage four lymphoma. And just to, to summarize your story, you were so, you were so high, you had worked so hard for so many decades and you were so highly respected in China. You were called teacher Kaifu. You had 50 million social media followers, but you realized that when you were confronted with your own mortality, that, you know, having an impact, maybe you needed to focus a little bit more on the people closest to you, the people you loved. Side by side with that, you also did your own research and realized it's not all about stage one, two, three, four. There are maybe thousands of factors involved in medical diagnosis. And you did your research and realized it wasn't as bad as you might've thought. And thankfully, you're sitting here today with us. You're a fully cured and a changed person as a result. What do you feel changed most with you when you were confronted with your own mortality? We're, we're similar yeah. in age, so I'm always yeah. interested. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I know you're not a workaholic anymore, right? <laughs> it's true. I'm not. You used for to these be. Podcasts. That's yes. right. It's wonderful. I think your lifestyle is the lifestyle uh, we admire and um, uh, should increasingly move towards. Uh, I think people. You know, I think there is um, unbelievable um, attraction and um, addiction to hard work because hard work comes out with rewards. And, rewards. and meaning, as you mentioned earlier. And meaning, yes. Rewards in terms of um, financial fame, um, sense of um, accomplishment and actualization. This can become addictive. And uh, that's what I fell into. And I think the societal values... Uh, rewards that people admire you if you work hard or and certainly re rewards you when you're successful but when I was faced with uh, the possibility that I had only uh, months to live it suddenly realized to me none of this really meant anything that the only things that uh, were meaningful to me was spending time with the people I loved and 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 doing the things that I love and then I realized how foolishly that I had lived and I vowed to, to change my ways uh, if I could get better, and, and I did. So I'm now uh, really changing my own priorities. So I would put my family's priorities first. Uh, when, you know, when they needed me, when they want to take a vacation, I just don't work. Fortunately, I'm a venture capitalist. My days are not required to be uh, you know, five days a week or, or whatever. I can take more time off. Uh, as they need it. Of course, they're still aware that I love my job too. So their their requests are reasonable. So I now work maybe 20% less. Um, but uh, but that, that would, that's enough to uh, just in time to spend the time with the family uh, when they want and need it. And when I do spend time with them, I wholeheartedly spend time with them. I don't take my phone and my com computer and open it up um, and, and it was that um, awakening and epiphany that when I saw AI might take a lot of routine jobs away, um, I think actually for the very long term, it's good for humanity because we continue to fall into this um, trap of uh, downward spiral of continuing to be um, addicted to work and, and, and seemingly prove that we're worth something. But in fact, uh, when we pass on and die, uh, we won't be remembered. So it's it's really a matter of um, um, giving back to the people who who love you. So that 
and then and also that I think for the AI uh, that takes the jobs away, well, what jobs could be created? Um, I, because of my own experience, I would think we have to create jobs around compassion and love, um, not just not just voluntary jobs, but jobs that have an economic value, but maybe just not enough. Jobs that are including teachers and nurses and nannies and jobs that include psychiatrists and uh, elderly companion, elderly caretaker. I think those jobs can absorb a lot of the people who may lose their jobs due to AI displacement. And these are compassionate jobs um, are not only large enough in quantity, uh, they don't require a whole lot of training, a lifelong training. And also, I think at the end of the day, I, I got to think someone who took care of uh, two elderly people have got to feel better at the end of the day than someone who just did repetitively did the same thing on the assembly line. This next clip, Such a Smart Guy, episode 457, Sam Harris is a neuroscientist, a philosopher, a podcast host, an author. He has opinions on everything ranging from AI to terrorism to religion. We talk about it all. You know, it's interesting. When I interviewed Sam Harris, he had just finished doing a series of events with Daniel Kahneman, the author of Thinking Fast and Slow. Daniel Kahneman, if you don't know, is Nobel Prize winning economist who researched all of the cognitive biases that we have, these kind of shortcuts in thinking that essentially manipulate the way we think. And Daniel Kahneman's theory is that you can't avoid these cognitive biases. So you can't avoid, for instance, feeling more horror and fear of loss than happiness and greed from winning. And, or, or you know, he talks about cognitive biases like anchoring, where if you're in a negotiation, you know, say a higher number first. So, so the negotiation gets anchored on that higher number and people can't help but be manipulated by these small cognitive biases if used correctly, even if they know that the cognitive biases exist. So we talk about that. And we also talk about the effort of living an examined life. What does it even mean in an examined life? And we talk about that in this clip. Let's roll it. What I'm curious is if do you think, you know, A, it's clear we have all these cognitive biases. B, most people will probably deny it in most cases. But C, do you think there's ways to overcome a lot of these biases and how can they, how can they be healthy for us going forward? How can we use knowledge of these biases to go going forward to, to improve our lives? Well, it was interesting to talk to Danny last night because, as, as you say, Danny is the the father of much of this literature, and he's very pe pessimistic with respect to how much you can improve you, just your your rationality or your um, your navigation of of what is at bottom the a kind of structure to your ignorance and and uh, and and your unconscious mind. And what's happening? What, what bias is is um, it's something more than than error. It's it's a reliable form of error. The errors are moving in one direction, and uh, so this this part of your mentality uh, and culture. I mean, our collective mentality that we can't see, that we can't always inspect the the, the code, we can't 
you know, easily rewrite, has a structure which is producing reliable errors, right? So this is, you know, normal error is the sort of thing that can wash out collectively. So, you know, the the expectation that a market can't be wrong or that a whole society can't be wrong is only valid when everyone's errors are uncorrelated, right? But here we're talking about correlated error. We're talking about biases that we all share where we're going to be reliably wrong in one direction or another. And I think there are many of these. Um, I think the first, I think Danny would admit that you can become better at anticipating those situations where you're liable to be misled, where your intuitions are liable to be wrong. And, um, you know, from, you know, my experience in meditation, you know, I would say that another piece here is you can be more and more aware of your emotional life and the way, and, and your attachment to certain things being true. I mean, so a very reliable source of bias is just you're wanting things to be a certain way. I mean, just wishful thinking is this sort of overarching uh, property of a, a mind that's actually in those moments not making valid contact with reality because you're you're, you're con- continually gaming uh, or attempting to game realities to deliver the message that you are going to find consoling. I want so, you know I, I don't want to see the evidence of this thing that will disappoint me. Right, so, and and, it, and it's so important to address that because wishful thinking is often accompanied by disappointment when you don't get what you want. If you if you write a book and it doesn't make it, and your 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 happiness is linked to it getting to the bestseller list and it doesn't right. get there, you're disappointed. And so, kind of being aware of that bias could improve your life. Yeah, well, and so I mean, there's there's disappointment, but there's also um, it's just the more you can be aware of your changes of state moment to moment, the, 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 these these micro disappointments or the, you know, the the hope and fear that is constantly you know percolating beneath the surface, uh, which which if you're not really vigilant you won't know you're feeling hope and fear in each moment, right? It's like, like if you're not, many of us, or most of us certainly, live with this, with a kind of an ambient level of anxiety and, and... Or a very high level of anxiety. Yeah, yeah but like, like it, but, it's, but, you know, there are people who know they have a problem with anxiety. There are people who would, could honestly say, no, no, I'm not an anxious person, I'm fine, but... The, you can be kind of you can become a connoisseur of your own neurosis and your own you know seeking happiness and and meditation really is the tool whereby you would do that and, you know you just become more observant of of why it is you you do things why did I say that thing which I mean it's just there's some kind of stark examples of this like we all know that uh, name dropping and you know telling telling stories in ways that seem to the whole purpose, the whole very structure and intent of the whole utterance is to shine a favorable light on oneself, right? We know how that plays when other people do it, right? Like when you see somebody who's name dropping a lot and they're and they're and they're telling self-aggrandizing stories, it almost never gives a positive sense of who that person is, right? Like you're you're just it's it looks bad to you whenever anyone else does it. And yet, almost everyone is tempted to do it themselves. Like we can't do that—the most basic piece of arithmetic, where we see this thing advertised 
on everyone else and it looks like if you had a if you were wearing a sweater that I thought looked terrible on you and then your friend puts it on and it looks terrible on him too and then I go into a store and buy that same sweater right it's like it, it's it's completely delusional and yet there are many cognitive failures like this where we we just don't uh, we don't do the math right and the more you can become aware of your actual intentions like the thing I'm about to do or that I just did five seconds ago, you know, while I'm selling it both to myself and to somebody else as an expression of my concern, you know, or my altruism or my, you know, my intellectual honesty or whatever, it, it was actually motivated by my fear of how I was being perceived or my, you know, um, you know, uh, my selfishness. I wanted something that I was, it wasn't acknowledging. It was subtext. It wasn't text in the conversation. I mean, these are humbling insights that you can have more of and, you know, the, the goal there is not to just become more depressed and cynical about, you know, what a mediocre person you are, is to actually then be able to navigate a little better through this space so that you become more of the person you want to be. I mean, what, what, I, what I would hope to be as a person is to to shrink the distance between what I what is in fact true of me and what I hope people think is true of me. Like So like that's... And when that distance is is wide, you know, then you're then you're a hypocrite. I mean, then you're living a life of stark hypocrisy. And when the, and if you can narrow it enough, you you know that's the that's the the effort of an examined life that is that is increasing honesty and and self awareness and 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 really an ethical code. Next up, we have my good friend, George Gilder. It's a 79-year-old futurist, and I swear to God, he doesn't look a day over 76 and a half. The great thing about George Gilder, I've been reading him since the early 90s. In the early 90s, he was predicting, oh, we're going to have supercomputers in our pockets that we could watch videos off of. And I'm thinking like, all right, I hope so, but I, I doubt it. And now, of course, I've got a supercomputer in my pocket that I watch videos on all day long. He's the author of Life After Google, The Fall of Big Data, and The Rise of the Blockchain Economy. We had such a great discussion. It was actually in front of a live audience. There was a lot of interest in it. I had him on the podcast because he's been predicting the future nonstop for decades. This is what happened. Steve Jobs read his book in 1990, you know, 17 years later, the iPhone. So now George is investigating the future of blockchain and Bitcoin. You know that I'm very interested in this topic, but what I really wanted to learn from George was how I, and then you guys could learn how to think like a futurist. Cause there's a lot of benefits to being able to guess what's coming around the corner. So here's the clip from George. If you have robots shelving Walmart instead of a hundred thousand people shelving, putting products on the shelves of all the Walmarts, where yes, Walmart will have an increase in profits, an increase in billions of dollars of cash, and you're basically saying, um, and this is related to all your stuff in the '80s on yeah. supply side economics, but you're basically saying that billion dollars will find its way into new companies of the economy that will employ people. Yeah. So so the the people who say the opposite say for the first time ever 
the people who were only good at shelving shelves, where are they going to go? Because now it's only robots. So now there isn't an industry replacing them. It's robots replacing them. Well, I, I just think the whole, it, you know, to go job by job that way in a kind of micro analysis isn't uh, very effective. I mean, you, I can't predict exactly what each person in Walmart is going to end up doing. I can predict that in a much wealthier society, there will be more projects that uh, indiv each individual will be more productive, capable of, of a greater variety of functions and, and uh, unleashed uh, more creativity and uh, thus more and better and safer and more creative and exciting jobs will result. Uh, right now, uh, uh, shelving products at Walmart must be one of the dreariest jobs <laughs> on earth. And uh, all through the history of economics, uh, technologies have emerged and replaced the worst jobs and released human beings to do better things. And, and I, I believe that the current changes uh, partly because of a cultural shift against industry, uh, reflecting uh, a lot of people's uh, satisfaction with their own material uh, achievements or material possibilities. That uh, as a result, of, as a result of this. Uh, the change is rather less dramatic than the change of the Industrial Revolution of the uh, 20th, 19th century. You know, that, that was a, when uh, everybody left the farms and entered the cities and the factories. That was a complete uh, transformation. And most of the Luddite propositions were introduced during that period with the same kind of confidence that people bring to bear today on AI and AI, artificial intelligence. And, and they were completely dis disproven. The more investment in machines during the Industrial Revolution, the more jobs better pay, uh, greater longevity, more possibilities. It, it just, there was no uh, meaningful destruction of jobs during the Industrial Revolution. And, and I, have, I have an example with internet technology that totally agrees with you, but I'll get to that in a second. There's one thing to say when we read Life After Google and we see all your predictions or your, your older book, Life After Television, or your other books where you make all these predictions. What I'm also really fascinated by is what you just said, which is how does one become a futurist? Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't want to just read a futurist's stuff. Yeah. I want to be smart enough to be to know what's coming. And what you just said makes very common sense. So I'll give you my example. When, when the web was getting big, yeah. so in 1994, Nobody knew what the World Wide Web was in, <laughs> yeah. in corporate America. And when, they were, when, when corporate America was writing networking applications, they would often write their own networking protocols. And so there was all these network software engineers yeah. in yeah. business, smart, educated, even PhD people, who once the web was around, 
they they were all out of a job, it would seem. Yeah. Now, obviously, it wasn't like a whole class of PhDs and network engineers became unemployed and started yeah. <laughs> working at McDonald's. Like they found other things to do. Yeah. They started companies. They they developed. They were smart enough to develop other yeah. ways to use their skill yeah. sets. So the internet itself should have like wiped out millions and millions of jobs, and it simply didn't. The economy is at its highest point ever. And it's a vast transformation, the Internet itself. Right. I mean, it's not a small thing. And the fact the Internet itself multiplied jobs overwhelmingly for for its victims, software engineers, found uh, a huge proliferation of opportunities. It's just a fact of life that suppression of technology destroys jobs. And so the, the big threat to employment in the world is Luddites, is people who imagine that uh, we have to, uh, that the new technologies will destro- wreak havoc on employment. They will wreak havoc on employment, but they also will release all sorts of new possibilities and new uh, new employment. So, so history agrees with you because we could find a thousand examples. Yeah. We could even find examples from your own predictions 20 years ago or yeah. 30 years ago. But Elon Musk doesn't agree with you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, Elon Musk is a brilliant entrepreneur, but he's a fool in many ways. Right. And so because he said we're going to need a universal basic income. Yeah. But what I want to know is how does somebody, what tool set are you reaching into to to be to be so accurately a futurist like well, what what are you looking at and how do you think about problems so you can come up with this assessment because it's very clear oh yeah t- technology is going to create more jobs and that's what's always happened throughout history mm-hmm. why doesn't everyone think this well yeah. well a lot of people don't think this so how does what are well, you doing right well, now because because I'm a I really am a generalist I mean I I you know I began writing about sex and family those were my Although my very first book was about politics. It was called The Party That Lost Its Head. It was about the Goldwater era. And I wrote it with my college roommate, Bruce Chapman, who's, who's still writing books today at uh, the Discovery Institute. And, and, uh, but, uh, you know, I started writing about politics. I then wrote about sex. Then I wrote about uh, poverty. And then I saw that uh, to understand poverty, you really had to understand wealth. And so I wrote about economics. And my first major book about economics was called Wealth and Poverty. And it sold literally millions of copies around the world. It was the number one book in France for six months. It was uh, Ronald Reagan's favorite book for years. Uh, I was Ronald Reagan's most quoted living authors. Uh, you know, it, it, uh, but that was wealth and poverty, it was economics. But as I wrote that, the most exciting thing I've encountered was a cover story. You want to know how to be a futurist? Yes. I read a cover story in Time magazine about the microchip. And uh, that was my introduction to the microchip. And uh, I decided this was the most exciting thing happening in the world. So I would stop. I mastered economics. Other economists were not selling millions of copies of their books. So, so I decided to learn 
microchips. And, uh, and I thought to really understand the, what microchips meant to me was a real shift of all technology. Uh, until and physics was mostly about exerting forces on materials and moving them from outside. But uh, microchips seemed to be the first technology that consisted of manipulating matter from the inside and, and really reducing matter in a way or expanding matter, if you wish, uh, through information. And, and uh, so, so this seemed to be a fundamental pivot in the history of technology. And so I wrote four books on microchips and then fiber optics seemed to me to be the most exciting thing happening. So I wrote about fiber optics. And of course it's the combination of the two computers. Yeah. Few, so, yeah. so, so essentially let me, let me unpack it. So, so previously matter would move from somebody would con manufacture something would yeah. manufacture matter like a car yeah. Yeah. and it would get transported to someone else and that's how things yeah. moved around or someone would print something in a newspaper and it would be delivered to somebody and that's yeah. how ma even information was transmitted yeah. Yeah. so now what the microchip did in in the mind of a future i'm just trying to yeah. uh reverse engineer the mind of a futurist how did yeah. you what you saw was okay now information is scalable. Now yeah. there's like no stop to how information yeah. can spread. And particularly when we combine it with the fact that computers are getting faster all the time, what does this, you ask the question, what does this mean? Mm. And, and that's kind of, you're, you're asking, given a new state of the world, yeah. what does this, what does this, this mean? mean? Yeah. And you start to think of all the things that it might mean and you eliminate the things that are ridiculous based on your, and this is where being a generalist comes in, based on your information of economics, okay, information is not gonna be used to you know, create more flowers and peace in the world, but it will be used for this, 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 yeah, and this. Uh, uh. Well, that's, that's pretty much it. The next guest I'm gonna feature on this 500th anniversary episode is Howard Marks. Howard is number 374 on the Forbes richest list. He co-founded a huge money management firm, Oak Tree Capital Management. He's worth about almost $2 billion. And I asked him, do you, do you hate being introduced as a billionaire, particularly in this environment now where you have so many people, like I think, um, well, many people are calling for, we should banish all billionaires. And he pretty much said, yes, he hates it because... He said his amount of money doesn't sum up who he is, and he doesn't think it's the greatest thing about him. And again, he offers so many valuable insights into both investing, uh, living a peak performance life, uh, being charitable. The, the interview is really interesting because what Howard Mark says about market cycles is not just about finance, but also about human nature. Like why does the market go up and then inevitably go down and then inevitably go up? It's, it's very much related to how humans live their lives and how, if you look back all through history, how history has cycled into different market ups and downs and environments and so on. So really great, nice person. I think the topic of whether or not billionaires should exist is sort of a stupid topic. You have to look at deeper things, like what are the contributions these people have made 
in society, not only in terms of the jobs they've created, the philanthropy they've done, but you know how they've spent their money to advance the world. And, and you have to ask yourself, who is a better allocator of money, the US government or people like Bill Gates, who's devoting his life now to giving $100 billion to charity, and even Howard Marks, who's, you know, just a single digit billionaire as opposed to Bill Gates, but again, is so focused on how to improve the world. I think it's worth listening to him. Here's the clip. So, uh, you know, in the investing business, we sometimes know what's going to happen. We never know when. Uh, we should never act with extreme conviction. Mm. Uh, the, the world, if you're a celeb reader, fooled by randomness, you know the world is too uncertain to permit certainty. Mark Twain, I think, said it best. He said, uh, it's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for certain that just ain't true. And, uh, you know, if you admit to uncertainty, you're unlikely to get carried out. So let's, let's extrapolate that to something outside the market, like something in your personal life, say, because the same rule applies. Like you even talk about it. Success breeds a certain sure. relaxation of your decision-making. Exactly. Well, you know, our, look, uh, our wives always claim that men are not good at asking directions. And let's say after our interview today, I want to drive from New York to Boston. Now, if I am appropriately humble about my knowledge of the geography, I will get a map, ask directions, turn on the GPS, and drive slowly enough so that I don't make wrong turns. But if I'm cocksure that I know the way, I will not get a map or ask directions or turn on the GPS. I'll drive really fast. I'll probably go right by my exit and I'll get lost. All because I thought I knew something that I didn't. So that is one of the things to watch out for. And so, so this is almost um, what you refer to as the second level thinking, like understanding what you're understanding. Exactly. And in general, understanding that you probably don't know as much as you think you do. Well, that's one of the important things. Um, but I, I like your phraseology, uh, you know, uh, understanding your understanding. The, the matter of uh, second level thinking is very important. We talked before about, uh, I think your example was Apple. Great company. Most people who haven't thought about it enough, who haven't read what I've written, might say, great company, we should buy the stock. But other people who, who think more deeply might say, it's a great company, but it's not as great as everybody thinks, so it's probably overpriced, we should sell the stock. You have to, you know, we used to call it uh, reverse psychology when we were kids. But you have to, if you want, you know, investing is a competitive game. You are in there trying to find the cheap assets and so is everybody else. You are in there trying to hold more at the right time and less at the wrong time, and so is everybody else. So to some extent, you have to learn to think different from others and better. 
thinking different is not enough. If it's worse, it has to be different and better. I was really excited to talk to Danica Patrick. She's one of the most recognized female athletes in history, and she's a, a I think the the best female top level professional race car driver. I you know I've actually taken race. I don't drive. I don't even have a driver's license, but I've actually taken race car lessons on a professional racetrack. And the trainer, who was the himself a professional race car driver, he mentioned to. Uh, me afterwards that I was the worst student he ever had, but I was so bad. I didn't even have bad habits. I had no habits. So he thought he could teach me, but I was just too scared. I didn't even like going a hundred miles an hour, which is why I'm doubly impressed that Danica Patrick, you know, I just can't even fathom the, the skills. And I'm glad I had a chance to talk to her. She started racing when she was 10 years old and she went on, she made a career out of it. So here's Danica Patrick from episode 413, How to Find Your Driving Force. Yeah, it was just a dream, but that that's something that I don't even know. I don't really know if that's something that I was born with or something that I learned. I'm sure on some level it's a little bit of both. My dad's quite the dreamer. Um, and it sounds like they were supportive. Like, yeah, absolutely. Like, how did you enter your first like, uh, race, your first competition? Um, I mean, we practiced a little bit, and then Dad signed us up at the local go-kart track for, you know, me and my sister started, and we started in the back. We couldn't even keep up on the parade laps, which parade laps are where you go really slow and kind of get in formation, and then they drop the green flag, and then you go. So, I mean, we couldn't even keep up going slow. And, and I was winning by the middle of the season. So, so, so in the very first time, you were like all the way behind, but you didn't. Yeah. You didn't say to yourself, "Oh well, I guess that's it for me." And car racing. So this is the nature versus nurture thing. Yeah. There, to some extent, you whether it was nature or not, that very first time, you're still gonna kind of suck compared to the people who have been doing it ten years longer than you. You'd so hope you so. have to be or able. You think so? <laughs> you have to push through, right? So how did you? How did you say to yourself? And I believe you that there's a so, big nature component, but then yeah. how do you, you? There has to be some. So nurture. this is what I loved about racing. This is what I loved the most was setting a goal and accomplishing it. So for me, I loved and I. I so going faster was always the goal. And when you're practicing racing, you're going off of lap time. So you took you 38 seconds and 38 seconds and 19 tenths, you know, 38.9. And then you come back in and you're like 38.6 and then 38.5 and then a 38 flat. And you just figure out how you can go tenths of a tenths of a second faster every lap. And uh, did you have someone teaching you tricks like, oh, when you make oh, this? Oh, sure, kind of yep. Uh-huh. My dad was telling me. I mean, he used to he did race when he was younger, so he knew a lot about it. And he also knew about setting the setting it up and the mechanics of it because he would he built snowmobiles and all kind of built built midget cars and um, so he had a lot of technical information so he would teach me about driving he would teach me about um, he, we'd also work on the setup so if it didn't want to turn very well if it turned too well you know he would make changes on the go-kart and so yeah we were working on handling as well as the line and getting faster and faster was what I loved and what and what what ultimately separated you from the pack in your local community, cart community? Like what, did they not have somebody like your dad who 
work with them. Uh, I mean, I'm sure I had some advantages having a dad who had such, you know, so much technical knowledge. Um, but as I more hear about it today than I did, obviously, back then, because I was just doing it. But, you know, just my level of, of passion and commitment and drive was was just kind of unique. And, and then the ability to go with it. Like, I wanted to get better all the time. So you would practice constantly. So I would, apparently I would always, I would ask to go practice all the time. And um, because I loved getting faster. And so even in, you know, when I was, you know, proportionately, you know, probably the, as fast as I ever was compared to anyone else, it was never enough. Like well, what's the fastest we could be, I could be like, I could be like a second faster than the, than the next fastest driver in my class. And we just keep pushing. So you retired from the racing, you're 36. Do you think at any age, someone could say, you know what, I'm passionate about X and they can start moving forward and create, you know, magic success? Do I believe that that's yeah. possible? Absolutely. Because you're do. doing it now with all I your, do. like who would have thought you would have gone from race car driving to a vineyard, to yeah. a clothing line, to books? I think that your true passions in life are they come off so well it resonates with people people can tell when you're really into something and when you're not when you're educated when you're passionate when you light up about it it's that metaphysical energy that happens when you love something and people are like wow like look at you just light up when you talk about that right, it you creates know? more energy right yes more energy higher vibration and so when you're doing stuff that creates that you are attracting like things of that high vibration, positive energy, and it and it's um it's like a magnet, you know? Oh man, since I was a kid, this was like a bucket list podcast, this next clip. Since I was a kid, I've loved all the songs like Good Vibrations, Barbaran, and then later on Kokomo. And Mike Love, he's the guy He's a Beach Boy. He was in the Beach Boys. He was the guy who wrote all these songs. So this guest was a dream come true. And he's 78 years old now and still touring. This year, he visited 106 cities all around the world. So here's a clip from the legendary Mike Love from episode 477. I've always loved the live live part of it more than the studio to me the studio is is a wonderful thing it's necessary to to do to gain as perfect uh, a recording as possible it's impossible in a live setting to make it perfect but that's part of the beauty of it it's it's just natural but the effect that our music has on people all over the world in places where their english is not their first language for instance, Japan will start a song. Like if you start California Girls, dun, 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 they go, ah, like bonsai or something, you know? <laughs> In Germany, they're, they're stomping along to help me, Rhonda, help. It's Teutonic. You know, it's really amazing all over the world. And help, help me, Rhonda, that was your, your second number one song to, to you know, hit to the top of the charts. I get around being get, the first. That's right. So, and then Good Vibrations, the third. And then you have this record of the longest period between two number one songs. 22 years. You wrote Kokomo. Aruba, Jamaica. Ooh, I want to take you. Bermuda, Bahama. 
Come on, pretty mama, Key Largo, Montego, baby, why don't we go? <laughs> okay, is that cool or what? But also, I'm curious, how many people know, how many people know that Kokomo doesn't actually exist? Hey, no, easy. <laughs> You know, what are you here to pop bubbles or something? No, it's I mean, it's a perfect no, word. It's the perfect word for it. James Fry is one of my favorite authors. He's the best selling author of A Million Little Pieces. Now, when the book came out, there was controversy. Was this a novel? Was this nonfiction? I personally don't care. If you want to learn to be a good writer, read this book reread it and reread it again. It's one of the best written books, both in terms of the storytelling, the language, structurally, how this main character changes his language as he goes from being a desperate alcoholic to sober and all the things that happen in between as the story unfolds. So just, again, this is not just a great novel to read, but is almost like a textbook on how to write a great novel. And I wanted to really uncover from him. You don't, you're not just born with this kind of writing skill. Like what happened? And he, he decided early on in his career, he wanted to be the most notorious writer in the world. He kept that mantra almost in his head. He ran off to Paris, but nothing happened for 12 years. I find often if you go to places for inspiration, no inspiration happens, but you know, also it takes a long time to be a good writer. He was writing every day and he was working at it. He tells me about those 12 years in this interview, which is episode 408. We talk about writing style, how he developed a unique voice, going to rehab, struggling with addiction and depression. But mostly we talked about how he learned to really find his honest, true voice and how that comes out in his writing. It was, he went through his own arc of the hero on his path to becoming a great writer and I, I had tried from the very beginning of this podcast to get him on the podcast. Finally, we got him on. I consider him a friend. And here's the clip of James Fry. I've always, my whole life, thought a lot about God. And, and I have pretty fluid beliefs where sometimes I believe in God, sometimes I don't. Um, but I have always wanted to. Um, and I had, uh, I had a son who died in 2008. And when he was in the hospital and sick, and I knew he was going to die, there was always a period of the day where the doctors would have to, a couple times during the day, the doctors would have to come by and they would ask us to leave the room. And it was on the Upper East Side in New York. And when that happened, I would just go wander around and I would walk usually into religious institutions. Um, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist. I went into all of them. And I, I would ask God to help me. And I would get on my knees and say, let my son live and take me. Let him live, just fucking take me. Give me or, or give me some sign that there's a reason that this is fucking happening, something. And I came out of that experience um, thinking a lot about if there were a God, who would I want that God to be? Like who's a God I could worship? 
because I came out of that experience, despite having gone to all these places, not believing. So what could I believe in? What made you suddenly say, okay, finally I'm going to write that coming-of-age novel that usually novelists write first, but and now I'm going to write it after this whole career. Um, so this book came about about probably a year and a half, two years ago. Um, I was just depressed. I, I felt awful, and and despite whatever success I had and despite having a family I loved and friends I loved and what from the outside is a great life. I was just fucking depressed and I just wanted to die. And and I would wake up every day and get in my car and think about driving it into a tree. And I would climb into bed at night and I would think about taking a whole bottle of Tylenol PM and never waking up. And I was just fucking depressed. Um, I have this therapist um, who I have, a, I think, a pretty unconventional relationship with. I've, I've, I, I don't see him regularly. I call him when I feel like I need to talk to him, which sometimes is twice a month and sometimes once a year. Um, and the first time I saw him, I said, listen, I'm not here to talk to a fucking wall. Like, I expect this to be a conversation. I want to hear your thoughts. I want to hear your opinion. And I want your advice. Um, and so I was depressed. And I called him. And I told him basically what I just told you. I wake up every day and I want to fucking die. And he sort of laughed. And he said, well, I have a couple questions for you. I said, what? He goes, "What? do you have your earrings in? And I don't know if you can see. I have six earrings, right? Um, and I was like, no, I don't. He was like, what kind of clothes are you wearing right now? And I said, oh, I'm wearing khakis and a Izod polo shirt. And he said, where are you? And I said, I'm at my office. And he said, the office where you write or the office where you run your company? And I was like, the office where I run my company. And he's like, and how's Connecticut? I was like, it's good. He's like, that big house yours, it's okay? I was like, yeah. He was like, the reason you want to fucking die is because you forgot who the fuck you are and you miss who you are. He said, go home and put your earrings back in and take off that polo and put on a t-shirt and stop going to the office of the company and go to the office where you write and write a fucking book. Um, he said, the version of you I knew would make fun of the version of you that exists today. Um, and that's the version you make fun of in Katerina. Yeah. Um, in, the, in the 1992 version of you, you're making fun of the people going in that direction. In the 2017 version of you, you're having the conversation you just had. Yeah. Um, he said, you, 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 you can run a business but still be yourself, right? He said, somewhere you got lost um, and you need to find yourself. And part of finding myself was writing a book. He said, you should be writing because it's what makes you happy. And he's right. You know, it's kind of a, I talked about this before when I was talking about Julia Cameron. It's sort of a saying, the 10,000 hour rule, that if you put 10,000 hours into something, you'll be among the best in the world. Well, this next clip is from a guy who put 50,000 hours mastering his field of expertise. Gilbert Gottfried has been doing stand-up comedy for over 50 years. He started when he was 15 years old, dropped out of high school, and within 10 years, he was on Saturday Night Live 
And he just, his career kept just going up and up. I mean, I even, a few weeks ago, I ran into him at the Comedy Cellar downtown New York City. He was doing stand-up there. That guy has not stopped. And if you look up any of his YouTube clips, it's just, it's so absurd and so talented and so skilled. And it's so weird. He's such a weird comedian. But what I love about Gilbert is that he doesn't let other people set the boundaries. He sets them. He decides where the line is and where the edge is and he crosses it so i'm just so impressed by this guy as a comedian it was also kind of funny when we had him on the podcast he was hungry and so he wanted to get some candy so he went in and bought him like all this halloween candy and then he just put it in his bag and took it home he didn't eat any of it but we did the interview it was a great interview here's a clip from it it's episode 426 enjoy the clip I mean, you started doing stand-up when you were 15, and I'm just reading this out of your Wikipedia page, and you dropped out of high school, and then really the next thing we hear from you is that you're on, you know, people see you and you're brought onto Saturday Night Live and you become uh, a part of the cast there. What's happening between 1970 and 1980? Like, how did you kind of, you know, build your skills? Yeah, I, I... God, I don't know. I mean, I started, it may have even been 69. I mean, I first time I went up on a stage, I was 15. And then as it was going on for years, I was going up whenever I could on stage, wherever they'd let me go on. And then after a while, I just sort of got tired of just the impressions and started playing around when I was on stage. And then I started to develop more of a real act. What does what does playing around mean and what does develop a real act mean? Um, well, you're still very young at this point. Yeah, yeah. I was um, uh, playing around and back then it was, I would just go up on stage with nothing prepared and just start talking and joking around. Sometimes I would lose, it was weird. It was like I'd lose the, audience totally sometimes they'd be walking out and and i back then i remember i didn't mind it all that much i think that was an advancement in skill not minding what the audience thought of you yeah because probably at first when you were 15 maybe you were scared to death of what the audience thought yeah it's it's like i mean it's still to this day i have that thing though where it's like and I think everybody in show business has this. It's that split personality where one half of you is like, I'm going into show business and people are going to pay money to come see me and they're going to go to the movies and turn on the TV just to watch me because I'm that great. And then the other half of you is saying, Oh, oh, please love me. Please love me. I want some reassurance that I'm worth it. Do you think you need both? Because when you're on the stage, you probably can't let the audience see you're nervous about what they think or else they'll tear you apart. But at the same time, you have to perform material that you know is going to make them laugh. Yeah. It's so, yeah. So it's a definitely split thing. And, And to this day, there are shows I'll do where I won't bomb, but it'll just, I'll know it's not 
you know, like wasn't great. Like the audience might be laughing and applauding, and but I'll know. I, I just don't feel it was strong enough. And I'll do, and I'll, with those, I'll go off and say, well, I've been getting along with it. I've been getting away with it so far, and now they're catching on. You always, I, I think a lot of people feel like, like one day the, the jig is up. Like, and um, I always feel like show business is a party that I snuck into and one day they're going to walk over to me with a clipboard and go, oh, I'm sorry, your name's not on the guest list. You know, and, and I, I, what you're saying to me sounds ridiculous, but I won't try to correct you. But, I mean, the obvious thing is you've created such a large persona and you've been involved in so many activities and so many people consider you an inspiration to their, their own comedic skills. Like at some point, one would think, oh, I've passed that line. I'm, I'm a success. People know I'm a success. But you're right. Look at like how many people, you know, one thing happens and then their career is over. Yeah. Well, and it seems like your process, and I, I hate using that word almost, it makes it sound like you go through some scientific formula when you sit down, but you're figuring out, okay, where's the edge? Where is it too soon or too tense and you're going to figure out some area on the other side of that line. And sometimes it's okay. Sometimes you might miss the mark. That's what happens when you're experimenting and trying things. So was there ever a point where you felt like, oh, I did go too far. That w and, and, and as a result, nobody laughed. I mean, maybe the 9-11 situation. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, there's all those things. Um, I remember I, I once... Uh, did this show that was a tribute to Joan Rivers. And um, I went on stage, and it was right after there was that shooting at this gay nightclub. And I started doing jokes about the shooting at the gay nightclub. And the audience was laughing all the way through. And you know, Joan Rivers, that's a largely gay audience. And, and one guy tweeted me and he said, I never thought that I'd wake, uh, he goes, I never thought I'd wake up crying and go to sleep laughing. That's good. Don't go just yet. You guys have done so much in supporting me. So I compiled all of this research I've done over the past four, four and a half years about side hustles. And I just want you to have this. I often talk to people about this and people think making money on the side is very difficult and it just doesn't have to be that way. And that's why I did an enormous amount of research to put together a brand new book, a book that I'm not publishing on Amazon. I printed up a bunch of copies. I want people who are really interested in the choose yourself life to get it. The book's called The Side Hustle Bible. The book is a collection of 177 proven opportunities to turn your hobby or existing skills into an entirely new source of income, which is why I called it The Side Hustle Bible. I wrote it for me. I wrote it for you. You can get it for free at jamesfreebooks.com. That's jamesfreebooks.com. 
claim your free copy of the Side Hustle Bible. Just go to jamesfreebooks.com. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.